Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phyllis Gove, and this is the very first episode of West Wing Wednesdays, where we will be talking about the pilot. Uh, we'll only be talking about the episodes that aired in 1999, so anyone who's expecting over 100 episodes of this will be sorely uh, disappointed. But uh, they will not be disappointed by the two amazing guests that we have for this pilot today. Alan Seppenwald, Chief TV Critic at Rolling Stone, and Emily Vanderwerf, Critic at Large at Vox and Co-Creator of Arden. Uh, I am so thrilled thrilled to talk with you guys about this. Um, I know that you have perhaps uh, 
a divisive opinion of of this of this episode, perhaps of this series. I want to kind of pre preemptively just say, you know, that uh, watching this show through the lens of 2021 is very different than it was maybe even uh, before 2016. So I think that uh, people's perspectives of the show probably has changed pretty dramatically as the political arena of this country has also shifted. So. I mean, I think it's shifted for some people, but I know a lot of friends who spent the last four years like binging this show sure, over sure, and over again sure. as like some sort of you know antidepressant. So for some people, it still very much has that magic. It. I mean, I'll say this: I did not rewatch the first season specifically because I knew that I was going to have this miniseries um, um, coming down the road. So I rewatched seasons two to the end. Uh, in 2020 as some sort of a a bomb of uh, the election year and the various things that were going on. Um, But I I, kind of want to rewind a little bit because I believe that you guys saw this show around the time that it aired. Were you watching it concurrently? Was it, how did it, how did it come into your lives? I was, I was not, I watched it a couple years later on when it was on DVD. That's how I watched the first couple seasons. And then I started watching live, right? As it started to fall apart. So that may, (laughs) that may color my opinion on this show. But I I watched, I watched the first season on DVD. The first season remains my favorite, though. I think the pilot is one of its weaker episodes. Alan? And I was, I'm an old man, so I've been, I was a TV critic at the time for a newspaper. Remember newspapers, kids? Uh, for the Star <laughs> no. Letter in New Jersey. And so not only did I review the, a bunch of episodes of the show, but I was at the, the first Television Critics Association press tour session for it, where a number wow. of things were discussed that wound up making their way into the final version of this pilot. So we'll, we'll talk about that I, oh, at that some point, because the version that we've seen is not the version that I first saw. Well, I mean, just to, you know, to go behind the curtain a little bit for our listeners, as some people know, I'm sure the people certainly on this, on this podcast know, pilots circulate around the industry as they're shot, then they change, there are reshoots, there are various things that come into play. Um, and as we'll talk a little bit about in this particular episode, you know, a pilot is shot months and months and months before a series goes to air. So there can be changes of set design, costumes, various things. Even quite frankly, the voices of characters can change and sometimes characters can outright disappear. Um, so it, it, it is a, it's a process, especially on broadcast more so than, than streaming or cable. Um, so you saw this at the time, Alan. Yes. And I'm very curious, you know, I, similarly to Emily, I didn't watch this show live until season two. So for me, uh, I also watched season one, I think, probably as it came out on DVD. Um, this show was sort of a sensation from the jump, it felt like. Yes. Um, and and I, I'm sort of curious as to uh, the reception that it got, why you think it got that reception, and how you imagine it would be received today if it was to premiere. Well, I remember because I had been a big fan of Sorkin's first TV show, Sports Night, which he had also done with Tommy Shalami as the director. And that was not a perfect show, but it was really fun. And he obviously was a new voice to television. And I'd seen a number of the movies that he'd written and really liked them. But, like, this felt a little bit different. Um, And then he starts doing this pilot. And I remember watching and thinking, well, this is really fantastic. But where is the audience going to be for this? Because I had been brainwashed, like so many people, into accepting the company line that, like, 
uh, audiences don't want to watch something overtly political, or if they do, they don't want to watch something with an overtly political message. And here is a show that, for the time, felt to me incredibly liberal. Like, just, you know, how dare they, like, say that he's a Democrat and, you know, be leaning to the left. No one's going to want to watch this. And even NBC seemed a little, you know, hedging its bets on it. And it wound up being a hit and talked about and, you know, an award winner from the start. So, Emily, you didn't watch it live, but obviously you heard about it. Did you feel like you did you wait consciously or was this a show that sort of and by that I mean, as we all know, the the OG binge is the box set, right? There are a lot of people that kind of waited, you know, notoriously your your aliases, your 24s, your what have you shows that found an audience later because the box sets helped them. Was this the case with you or did you just sort of was it not a show that you, you know, cared about? I was, I loved Sports Night. I watched Sports Night live. It just, it hit me at a bad time in my schooling. I just was too busy to be watching a lot of television. And then when I was, you know, a little more, uh, had a little breathing room, that's when I finally caught up. But I was always very interested in seeing it. I'm sure I caught a couple stray episodes because I've always been a big, like, Emmy follower. So um, I'm sure that I watched one or two episodes there. But, but you know, I was always a little bit bigger into um, Sopranos. Like that was kind of a show that I, I made time for. Um, and, you know, that was like the one show I had to fit in my schedule. That and Buffy sure. I was I was watching and then everything else kind of fell by the wayside. And those were already established in my life. So like I stopped watching X-Files at that time and I wrote a book about the X-Files. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I want to just, I'm going to very quickly give a synopsis and a little bit of context, and then I want to dive into, you know, this pilot and, and perhaps um, the toxic effects this show might have had on democracy. Um, oh, boy. The, the, uh, Buckle up, the senior, kids. The senior staff is called back to the White House as POTUS, quote unquote, uh, President of the United States. Jed Bartlett is injured, having ridden his bicycle into a tree. Josh Lyman, the deputy chief of staff, is in trouble after a television appearance in which he makes an insulting comment to a representative of a politically connected Christian group. And Sam Seaborn, the the deputy director of communications, spends a night with a woman who turns out to be a prostitute. Another subplot is uh, 1,200 Cuban boat refugees, 137 of whom arrive in Miami and request asylum, while 350 are missing in a storm presumed dead the pilot of the west wing aired on september 22nd 1999 it was written by aaron sorkin directed by tommy shlami it uh garnered just shy of 17 million viewers which is pretty crazy to think about uh the first season received 18 emmy awards for the 52 52nd primetime emmy awards uh best drama series best supporting actor best supporting actress best writing in a drama series for aaron sorkin and rick cleveland in the uh, somewhat infamous uh in excelsius deo uh outstanding directing for a drama series tommy shlami uh main title sequence and a bunch of others um so uh I, I want to just kind of dive in because obviously we don't have you forever and we could talk about this probably for many hours, but I want to sort of dive into the, the kind of the thick of it, which is that there are, there are a lot of people, some uh, perhaps even on this podcast that believe that this television show and perhaps this pilot started something. And by that, um, meaning a sort of idyllic, unrealistic expectations of how politics are supposed to go. Um, and I guess my question to both of you is, is that the show's fault? 
I'm pushing my chair back. Emily, this is you, girl. Take it. Emily's written many articles about this. So I'm, I just, I want to, I, I, I figure we just, let's yeah, tear off the Band-Aid. Let's do it. Uh, no and yes. I think it is, a, I think it is, I think it is a little silly to suggest, as we have in the last year, that the many, 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 many pop dramas that have influenced the way we sure. think about the police sure. um, is, uh, aren't, you know, that that is happening. And yet something like The West Wing did not influence how we think about politics, Mm -hmm. you know, as big of a show as it was and as groundbreaking of a show as it was. And I'm not saying anything against the show when I say that, Uh, because I I do really enjoy this show. I find it tremendous comfort food television. I am a, a, a white woman in her 30s or 40s and um the uh the, the just the aaron sorkin dialogue is just like a soothing balm to my brain um and i don't think that that is the show's fault i think that aaron sorkin's view of how political discussions should work is very has very much fallen out of favor. I don't know that that was out of favor in 1999, which is an important context to place on it. Absolutely. On the other hand, I think this show makes absolutely no effort to understand how political opposition works. The Republicans within its universe make no sense as characters, and it has presented <laughs> it created an unrealistic sense of that, which I think has yeah. filtered out to how the Democratic Party does a lot of things and how mainstream Democrats, uh, not so much the uh, the left, more leftist forces that are sort of really trying to change the party, either from within or without, how they think about how political opposition functions. And like that has paralyzed the party for quite some time. That, you know, maybe uh, this is, I'm not here to litigate the, the failures of American <laughs> democracy, but like, you know, one party, like like a bunch of people literally tried to overthrow the Capitol this year. Like, how do you write that into the West Wing? You can't. Like, Well, that's, that's yeah. the thing. Everything about this show, and Alan, obviously, I want to hear your thoughts about the, the, the shortcomings of this show, or this pilot, yeah. perhaps, as well. Um, but I, I do think that the show feels downright quaint now, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. when you think about the crisis at the center of this pilot, it's that Josh made a a, 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 a overly articulate insult uh, that, that I imagine most of the audience didn't even understand about tax fraud towards uh, a religious uh, individual. Uh, it wouldn't even make the news. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure anybody would even care. The idea of anyone in politics at this point losing their job because of any gaffe, let alone one this relatively mild, <laughs> like th- this feels like from a million years ago. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. so, you know, not naive because I imagine this sort of thing might have happened right. back then, but compared to what the last four years of America have done to accountability or the lack thereof, mm-hmm. you know. Josh would just double down and tell everyone to, yeah. you know, go bleep themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, I also, I, I want to fold in uh, for a second here another Aaron Sorkin show, which is Studio 60. And I bring that up because... Uh, hey. <laughs> don't don't say anything nice about Studio 60, Emily. It's, well, you? I don't think it's going to be anything nice. But I, I think that there's this, as we all know, Aaron Sorkin lives in a bubble, right? Like he lives mm-hmm. in this sort of... yes 
this perception of the world. And one of those perceptions is the fame of people that, quite frankly, are not famous. This idea that, that, that some people would go up to Josh and ask for his autograph, to me, seems kind of laughable. It's similar to when uh, Matt and Danny are outside the Studio 60 and there's a flood of people asking for their autographs. I guarantee you that the showrunners of sketch comedy shows do not have people asking for their autographs. I think that Aaron Sorkin puts these people on pedestals, which is completely fair, but he thinks everybody does. And I think that that's sort of a, a misconception on his part. But, but Alan, I, I want to dive into your feelings about the pilot and, and perhaps about the series and, and, and what shortcomings you think it might have. Or strength. Well, it's just, it's, uh, it was very weird watching this because I did, I, I loved this show once upon a time. You know, when, sure. when Matt Seitz and I, we did the TV book, we ranked it fairly highly, although I know a bunch of people at the time felt like we were, we were too harsh on it. Like, I think it's very important. It's sort of the last of the real classical broadcast, great broadcast network dramas uh, that was aiming for something big in this way. Um, but Sorkin's done a lot of things since then, including a show we have just brought up. Uh, Studio 60, he's done the newsroom, uh, the Chicago 7 movie, all of these. And it's like, it's so hard for me to now look at this show and not be seeing and hearing it through the lens of all the other stuff he's done and things that I found charming at the time, I now just want to like yell at people about, you know? Like for I sure, thought, sure. you know, like to- you know, Toby like telling off the flight attendant when Toby is introduced and rattling yes, off yes. all the details about the the flight control system and how his phone can't mess with it. At the time, it's a great introduction. Now he just seems like you know the atypical smug Sorkin character, but everybody sure. does. Like other than sure. Sam and CJ and Leo, I, I mean, I, I guess in Bartlett when he comes in at the end, but like I really did not like. Toby in this episode, I really did not like Josh in this episode. Nobody ever liked Mandy, but she seems even worse now, sort of. Hey, sure. look through the lens. Are you going to defend Mandy, Emily? No, I was just like, I was. I remember when I said at the start that the first season was my favorite. Can you imagine it was because of the one with Mandy? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> my favorite. No, Mandy's, I don't hate Mandy like a lot of people, but she's a character that never had a reason to exist. Go on, she just Alan. never. She no, never and, and, and as Phil notes, yeah. shows, sometimes characters disappear. For yeah. Mandy, it just wasn't after the pilot. It was around mid-season where that happened. For but sure. just like, a lo- there's a lot of devices. The character's constantly rattling off their resumes, explaining things. Even something like CJ uh, doing the pratfall off of the, the treadmill. The introduction, yeah. Yes, Alice and Janney, great at slapstick, wonderful, but now, like, I just only see it as all Sorkin heroines are ultimately clowns. And yeah. the first time we're seeing her, what does she do? She falls. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I just sort of want to talk about premise pilot versus throwing you in the deep end. Because I think that sure. this show does something that probably wouldn't happen on broadcast right now. The idea yes. of just of basically saying like, here are the characters, here's the universe. You're a year and a half into your first term. Just buckle up and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that, I mean, that's kind of a Sorkin trope now, I guess, for all intents and purposes, but how do you think that that affected the, the the love for the show or how it sort of how it affected the way people watched it. I mean, do you think that it's 
that that boldness, do you give credit to that? Do you appreciate that about it? I do. I mean, it's that's also oddly, even though he didn't really run the show until the fifth season, it's also a John Wells thing because <laughs> if you watch the ER pilot, it's the same thing. Like, obviously, you're getting John Carter's first day, but mostly it's just here's a bunch of people who've worked together forever. You'll f- have to figure out the terminology as you go. And, like, nowadays, you're absolutely right. A show today would make it. It's it's their first day. It's inauguration day. Maybe they would even make the whole first season the campaign. I mean, certainly if it was right. a Netflix show, the whole first season right. would be the campaign. Then they actually are, you know, the presidential administration Alan, for season Alan, two. Alan, if, ne- if this was a Netflix show, the whole first season would be Bartlett being born. We would see his first year of life. And then, and then like, somewhere in the finale, you'd be like, this guy's going to be president in 60 years. You'd be like, yes, great. But definitely... Yeah. No, definitely one of the sort of hallmarks of the Sorkin Schlami style is we're going to throw you into the deep end and trust that you can swim. And that part I do like because it's origin stories are almost never as interesting as stories of the characters just being together. There are very few premise pilots that are ever remotely as good as the show that followed. Just give me what the show is and the West Wing does that. I would also say, too, that it makes the premiere of season two so much more powerful because you love these people and you know these people. So getting to see how the Bartlett campaign came together and how all the pieces came together of this team that you've grown to love over 22 episodes, I think is you know, a stroke of, of brilliance to some degree. I think that I think it's interesting that the stakes of this episode, truly the stakes of the pilot episode are, is Josh going to get fired? who is someone that I don't even know, right? Like 10 minutes into this pilot, everyone's just like, is Josh going to get fired? I mean, 10 minutes, the first scene is about this reporter talking to Sam saying like, is Josh going to get fired? That's kind of insane. (laughs) Like it's, it's at least by the standards that we live in today, right? Where you're just like, I know that I'm being told that this is important but the fact that I really actually do care about 10 minutes into this episode when I meet Josh, when I see who he is, and and talk about just putting a lot on the shoulders of Bradley Whitford to make that character as, as likable as he is almost immediately. Yeah. I think one of the things I remember about this is that back when the show debuted, there were like all of these like the West Wing became a hit. So a lot of like magazines or whatever wrote about it. And I read probably an entertainment weekly feature. Cause that was the magazine I read about um, why this show was so beloved. And they were like, it gets you into the jargon. Did you know that POTUS means president of the United States? <laughs> like the degree, to, the degree to which people didn't know about the behind the scenes of the white house at that time, even though the Clinton administration, like people did know the names of those various, um, you know, I don't know, head speech writer or whatever, um, which is a thing that's carried through from then. Even when you're in a Republican administration, like we knew all of the Donald Trump underlings um, just intimately, um, which is a thing that I'm glad to no longer have to do. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I, I think that this show is really relying on you transferring your feelings about the Clinton White House onto what's happening on screen, a thing that grows more and more difficult, that grew more and more difficult literally in 2001. Like, (laughs) and the further we get from that, because, you know, you're supposed to be like, oh, that's the George Stephanopoulos. I'm like, I don't remember what George Stephanopoulos did. I just know he was there. (laughs) 
So I think he was the Sam Seaborn character. He was the deputy mm-hmm. communications director. But I, but to your to your point, Emily, I think it is interesting that like the sting at the end of the cold open is the reveal that POTUS means president of the United States. Like yeah, yeah. Like it's literally like ta-da, and it's 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 adorable now to think that that's something that tell your friend POTUS he has a silly name. Um, I, I, I do think that this show does, and, and I mean, I, I haven't done outside of Felicity, I haven't talked that much about, uh, Emily and I talked about Felicity a little bit too, um, that much broadcast television in 99 and watching this, both of you, maybe more specifically, Alan, I'm curious as to sort of how this show compared to the things around it. Like, watching it now, it feels very broadcast to me. Um, And I mean that in a good way. It's very comforting. But did this, I mean, obviously it won all these Emmys and what have you, but did this stand out? Did this feel drastically dissimilar to the things around it? Well, it's it's funny because it debuted, I think, three days apart from the Freaks and Geeks pilot, which we've yes. talked about, Phil, as yes. well. Yes. So sort of it's sort of two ships passing in the night. On the one hand, you have West Wing, which felt like a lot on broadcast, but felt like a better version of it. Like there's mm-hmm. certain stylistic quirks that you'd already seen on some of the glossier dramas like ER, for instance. Sure. But this was just sort of even more polished. The stakes are obviously much higher because it's taking place in the White House. The score is swelling, although it's very weird to hear the score in this pilot because they don't have the theme down yet. This sounds like the score to Dave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, it does. it does. I think I think they literally, that's the White House set that they use. They use the set yeah. from Dave and not the set from the American president, even though that's the one that Sorkin wrote where he has like sort of beta versions of all of these characters. Um but like it just in terms of the level of execution, the production values and all of that, this was about as good as it was getting at the time in broadcast. And in the years that followed, broadcast started to change and go a little bit more niche or in certain cases go a little bit more cinema verite, you know, or, or start aping like what the CSI shows were doing, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. photography. But this was like the culmination of 50 years of TV drama. This is like the this is like the last of the big '80s workplace dramas. Obviously, it debuted in 1999, but sure. there's this movement in the '80s that starts with Hill Street Blues, continues through St. Elsewhere, etc. That is like we are going to go into a workplace and show you the people there, and show you their lives, and show you how it functions. And that kind of dies off in the early 2000s when CSI is an out of nowhere monster hit, and everyone's like, "We're going to copy that," and then Lost a few years later is an out of nowhere monster hit. People are like, we're going to copy that. People have kind of tried to do shows like this since, but like the only one that's really stuck in terms of becoming a phenomenon was Grey's Anatomy. And that was very soapy. Like that was not quite on tone with the other stuff that had happened. So if nothing else, like I, I am impressed with this being that form of show um, that sort of has fallen away. And that I find very comforting. I could watch ER like all day long. Well, it feels like, and you you brought it up, both of you brought it up, but, you know, one of the things that I love about 99 is the premiere of The West Wing and the premiere of The Sopranos, right? This is, this is the fork in the road for television, right? Like, yes. this is the moment when you see, now, that's not to say West Wing wins best drama at the Emmys for four years, and it's obviously a, a titan of, the, but it is the last truly great, it feels like, broadcast drama that really kind of ran ran the the board 
but the Sopranos is the future, right? I mean, the Sopranos mm-hmm. is where it's all going. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the workplace. The family becomes the next thing, right? Like in, in cable, it feels like the family show, the dysfunctional family, the family business show, the what have you. It does feel like the Sopranos starts that that sort of trend. But it's also the good guy versus the anti-hero. Yes. Like these are like the most noble public servants totally. imaginable. And then they're going up against Tony Soprano. And it feels like the Emmy thing, the fact that it took until the fifth season for Sopranos to win best drama over West Wing mm-hmm. was as much about like what the industry wanted to say about itself and its image as it was about the idea of the entrenched broadcast old guard saying, we're not going to vote for this, this grubby cable show. The, you know, right, right. we are still where it's at. The goofiest thing about the Sopranos Emmy run is that it lost the first season. Everyone was like, well, the first season's going to win because it's so groundbreaking. And it yeah. won like writing. It won the two acting it won yep. uh, for Falco, not Gandolfini. He didn't win that season. And then it loses to The Practice. And you're like, <laughs> The Practice was a good show, but who the fuck thinks about The Practice anymore? You know? <laughs> I was just thinking about that because I realized, like, wait a minute, Sopranos is January of 99, so that first yeah. season did not go up against West Wing. No. And I couldn't remember which David E. Kelly show it was. But oh, God. <laughs> it's because you never think about The Practice, but you have to. You have you to. Have to. You got to start thinking about it. Sure. I mean, the fact that, I mean, David E. Kelly, obviously just a titan at the time, the amount of episodes he has his name on is just unreal. In 99 yes. alone, it's it's just incredible. But um, That's I, what I happens sort of, when you don't write second drafts. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Wow. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I, I want to just very quickly uh, talk about what you were talking about, Alan, in terms of the visual language that's set up. This This is also probably one of the most one of the early attempts at, at, at a cinematic-looking television show. I mean, this show is, is very sort of Robert Richardson-esque, a lot of hot lighting, a lot of sort of very, uh, obviously, the, the walk and talks, the long takes, the very sort of like fluid kind of almost theatrical component of it, I think is another thing that made this show stand out. I don't think that anyone had seen any... I mean, ER does that in terms of lots of steady cam shots and what have you, um, but it's also... I don't know. It, it, it's it's visceral in a different way. This feels like it's just sort of, it's a dance, whereas ER feels like it's an action sequence. Yeah, I I, um, I mean, obviously, Shlami and Storkin had been doing their uh, walk and talks on sports yeah. night. So, like, it's not like they're brand new here, but certainly this is when they start to feel like, oh, TV can do this. Because you've seen it in the movies before, yeah. but... Yeah. The West Wing figures out a way to do it, not just on a TV budget, but 22 times a season. And like that, that's really impressive. Obviously, like when we talk about cinematic television, a term I kind of hate using, but one that everybody (laughs) has sort of decided we should, you know, obviously The Sopranos is also a big part of that, but The Sopranos is a bit more traditionally filmed uh it just is much more like like the the cinematic qualities of it you kind of have to be super steeped in tv to understand whereas with this you see those walk and talks and you're like oh my god that's so impressive they're showy you know i i know that alan in particular loves the notion of the 10 episode movie i think that's one of his oh right okay i'm sorry you're breaking up so you can't so west wing origins on netflix is a 10 episode (laughs) movie about baby bartlett (laughs) baby bartlett oh my god that's terrible Um, right now (laughs) i i do want to sort of 
let, I, I want to dive into what the, the storyline or the plot line that I had the biggest issue with, which is Sam's. Um, I, I, I don't love the, the Lori, the prostitute with the heart no. of gold, who's trying to become a lawyer, um, is also a part-time bartender, uh, and he accidentally slept with and found out she was a prostitute because they swapped beepers. These, these are all, like, all of this just feels insane to me, but, you know. but also... Go ahead, Alan. But also, it's Rob Lowe, yeah, who had been involved in a sex scandal, yeah. like, not too long before. It is, yeah. it is one of the things that I think Mark Sorkin's quality as a writer is that you're watching one of these things, and you just kind of go with it. And then someone <laughs> describes to you the plot, and you're like, what the hell is happening? But also, like, keep in mind, this was the same year, because this was season two of Sports Night. He was writing concurrently with this, mm-hmm. and where, where Jeremy like has an affair with a porn actress who he's too ashamed to tell people does porn. And so he tells them she is a choreo animator. Um, Yeah. So like, clearly he had this on the brain, like, you know, put his sort of like slightly rumpled fumbling Hugh Grant esque, you know, writing young geniuses in with a sex worker. Yeah. There, it does feel like, and I don't know if this is, a commentary on sort of the puritanical stuff that exists in America and Sorkin trying to kind of, you know, poke at these taboos, or if this is just Sorkin being like, I don't know, it's the sex trade is, is interesting. It's exciting. It's, it's, as we all know, cause we've all seen the clips of all the various Sorkinisms the the man goes back to the well a lot. And yeah. sometimes I get the impression that he's just like, I don't know, prostitute. Like, so, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. he just kind of pulls things out of out of hats because I just feel like he knows, he's even said this himself, and, and I don't say this as a denigrating thing, but to him, the words almost don't matter. It's the mellifluous kind of quality that they have. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's like music to him. So he's just slotting in things that sound good to him. <laughs> And that's not necessarily the best way to write, but I no. Mean, but it's like it's an interesting way to put it because I'm someone who a lot of the time I don't think about the lyrics to the songs I'm listening to. I will play right. stuff in the car with my kids that I've heard a million times, and one of them will say, "Dad, what is this song about?" And I have to start listening. I'm like, "Oh my god!" Like it just doesn't occur to me. And I know there's definitely people who the rhythm of the Sorkin writing. Yes, is so soothing to them and so appealing, and I get that. It's the same way with Amy Sherman Palladino and some other writers mm-hmm. who have this very like idiosyncratic rhythm to the way that the the dialogue comes. Totally, Alan. If you've been jamming out to "Dude Looks Like a Lady" without thinking about it, <laughs> you're not <have> words. <laughs> I oh. it was not Aerosmith. I can say that much. I um I I, I want to talk for a second about um just because it, it's worth talking about and, and but, I, hold on, I, before we move on from please. from the, the the Lisa Edelstein story the other thing that's odd about it is like the show was originally designed and you can tell from watching this it's the Sam Seaborn show mm-hmm. Jed Bartlett was not supposed to be the main character there's even a version Sorkin has talked about where you never see the president it's the you know I want to hold your hand the Robert Zemeckis movie version where mm-hmm. Bartlett like you see his shoes as he's like leaving a room or something. And that's about it. Like and the mother hired... from How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And then, like, they hired Sheen, and it was going to be a small role, and he comes in, and he walks in saying, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no gods before me. Yeah. And immediately he takes over the show, and it transforms very quickly. But, like, this was meant to be a Roblo vehicle. And think mm-hmm. about the fact that, like, if this is meant to be a Roblo vehicle, 
he is starting the show off with Sam Seaborn accidentally sleeping with a sex worker. With with oddly gray hair too. Did you notice that he has like flecks of gray in his hair too? Like there's these there's choices with Sam's character in this pilot that are strange. It also speaks to um, the the somewhat strange relationship. It sounds like that that existed with Rob Lowe and this show, which is that he was pitched. I'm assuming the Rob Lowe show, and then all of a sudden it became a big ensemble and. I don't know how much he liked that. Um, you know, there's there's lots of, of talk about, you know, renegotiations of contracts when the show was a hit and uh, various cast members taking cuts in pay and Rob Lowe saying, I'm good. <laughs> Just uh, things that feel like Rob Lowe never stopped thinking that this was the Rob Lowe show. Rob Lowe always submits himself as a lead actor on any show he is on, no matter how, <laughs> the, no matter the size of the role. Yes. Um, I, w- I want to talk for a second about, you mentioned uh, the Bartlett um, Muppet Babies version where we only see the socks, you know, like the, the, <laughs> yeah. the version. Um, they did apparently approach Alan Alda at one point as an original candidate for Bartlett, as well as Sidney Poitier and Jason Robarbs, mm-hmm. um, all of which would have been quite interesting. I mean, I can't yeah. obviously see anyone other than than, uh, than Martin Sheen. The, 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 the one casting thing that, that, continues to feel like the sliding doors version of this show was that Eugene Levy was the second choice for Toby Ziegler. Um, That's fascinating to me. I don't Hmm. know quite what that is. Um, You know, uh, Richard Schiff has talked about how his, let's say, curmudgeonly components as a human, I think, bled into Toby Ziegler. And and obviously the, the, the character was sort of curtailed towards his strengths. Um, I don't know what the Eugene Levy comedic version of Toby Ziegler looks like, but it's... Can you imagine Eugene Levy getting cast in this? And then that summer, he also has done American Pie. So at the TCA panel, the first TCA panel for West Wing, there are a million questions about fucking a pie. What does Aaron Sorkin make of that? (laughs) But see, on the one hand, it threw me when you said that, Phil, but then I started thinking back to American President... And again, yeah. all of the characters in the show, Sorkin had already written yeah. in that movie. So Martin Sheen is playing Leo in American mm-hmm. President. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna Devere Smith is playing CJ, et cetera. They just yep. have different names. So the Toby character in that movie is played by David Paymer. So right. like, you right. know, who is a comedic actor who has also done drama and certainly done more drama than Eugene Levy. But like, it's not hard to envision like, here's another Jewy funny man, you know, with sort of a Borscht Belt yep. sensibility. We will put him in here and we will do this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you bring up the American president, which I think is is obviously incredibly important because it is the the sort of the the early version of this show, right? If you if anyone who has watched the American president, you can obviously see the the direct correlation between these two shows. Um, but it also speaks to the fluidity of the of the pilot process that we talked that we talked about up top. This idea of of a television show is an organism; it's an evolving thing that you kind of have to just hold on tight because it's a train that leaves the station and you can't really fight it and you pick the right people hopefully and you get the right cast and then you you work to the strengths of these actors and you try to you know obviously do the best job that you can but but I do think that this pilot's a perfect example of it's not one of my favorite episodes of this show for all the reasons that we're talking about because it doesn't totally know what it is yet it's still a much better pilot than most. I think we can, can safely say that just in its DNA, some of the choices that were made and what have you are bold and and most of them stick the landing. But like Toby's voice is weird. CJ's falling on a... I mean, all, all this stuff that you're just like, I don't really like this stuff. 
And then the show kind of finds its sea legs and I think it starts to work. Um, would you guys agree that in series, the show really starts to find its voice in a way that, that feels a little bit more um, solidified? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um... <laughs> 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 no, ask me, ask me that question again, because I, I got, uh, okay. I, I, I disagree. Do you, do you but like, <laughs> yeah, no, but I, that's that's fair. Um, do you feel like because I watching this pilot yesterday for the first time in a little while, I did mm-hmm. find myself just really seeing the pilot itis in it, mm-hmm. and I guess my question is. I do feel like the show, personally speaking, I think season two is my favorite season of the show, but I do think that it really starts to gel when Mandy starts to get shown the door and they start to really understand who this show's about. Yeah. Yes, it's about the men. That's great. Um, <laughs> I, I, what about not, men, Emily? Yeah. What happened to men? Give me yeah, some more not, men, please. And CJ. And CJ. Um, uh, but, and then um, CJ, yes. That was the original and, and like And Josh, when he's flirting with Mandy at the coffee shop, keeps like referring to her boyfriend as like a woman or at yeah, least a feminine. So that's, the, yeah, that, yeah, that has not been great. There was a quote yeah, from Sorkin and, where he said that his wife said, don't, don't write that. It's homophobic. And he <laughs> still did it. I am always fascinated when Aaron Sorkin was winning awards for Trials of Chicago 7, he kept talking about his daughter wanting to be a filmmaker. So I looked up her yeah. films and they're all really fucking good, but they're also like cinema verity documentaries. <laughs> it's just like, how far can I get away? Like one of them is just like, uh, one of them is about breastfeeding. And I'm like, what is the least Aaron Sorkin project you can possibly imagine? Um <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that this show really starts to gel a couple episodes into season one. Yeah. Um, adding Charlie, which I'm sure we'll, maybe Alan will talk about, was a response to complaints about the pilot. Yes. Charlie's never the show's best character, but he comes in and they're like, we have to introduce you to everyone. So they basically do a premise pilot in episode two, which yep. is weirdly like a successful choice. Um, by the middle of season one, I feel like this show is really uh, go firing on all cylinders. And like, again, I said I like season one best, and I agree that Mandy is like a big sore spot. But season one is when they don't know they're an important show, and they're still able to like get away with kind of That's goofy, fair. interesting things without like trying to underscore the grandiosity of everything. Um, and, and by season two. My hottest West Wing take is that I don't like two cathedrals, but we don't have to talk about that right now. Season two just starts to go over the top in a way that really bugs me. It's when the drugs start to really kick in. Yeah. Uh, 
I'll say I'll say this. <laughs> I think that uh, season two was the first season of television that I um, actually felt like as a viewer I could see from thirty thousand feet and could see the whole thing as as a piece as a as as a thing unto itself in a way that I had never kind of done before. I was probably I don't know nineteen or twenty at the time, but like I think that. I think what I appreciate about it is that it does feel like a full circle into itself, which I which I don't know that I had ever seen before. So I have a soft spot for it in that regard. But um, I, I, I want to kind of talk for a second about um, the, the the character entanglements, the the lack of romance on this show in a lot of ways. I think that it doesn't sort of. It's not really a show about the personal lives of these characters. It's about sort of how those personal lives intersect intersect with their work lives and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm bringing it up because of the Mallory and Sam scene in the in the pilot. Uh, Leo's daughter Mallory brings uh, her class to uh, the West Wing. Sam is supposed to give them a tour, and Sam, you know, accidentally tells her that uh, that he slept with a prostitute the night before. Um, and and then we get like goofy music as we go to a commercial. <laughs> it's uh-huh. it's not great. Um, so I, I kind of want to just I wanted to highlight for a second here that the Mandy and Josh thing was a they dated in the past and they've been brought back together in the West Wing. And I think it's interesting that the Donna component is what ultimately sort of thwarts the Mandy relationship with Josh. Um, and, and I just think it's I, I bring this up because it's it's kind of tropey. It's a thing that Sorkin does, which is workplace drama where a, a couple that used to be a couple are forced back together again how do you guys feel about that trope (laughs) it's fine like it's fine you know it it comes up a lot um i um uh the first time i ever wrote a pilot that got like any heat look at this me who's never actually sold a television show talking about like things having heat was about that exact concept like i think it's it's it is a thing that I think people are inherently interested in is like couples being forced to work together. Um, I mean, to, to actually grab from my own personal life, a big thing that like saved my marriage with my wife was we started a podcast together back when our marriage was really flailing. You can't access that podcast anymore because we took it off the internet for very good reasons, but like we scrubbed it from the yeah, world. We scrubbed it from the world, but like, yeah, it's, <laughs> It's um it is an inherently compelling dramatic format. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, West Wing pursuing that. They just didn't have a great like Aaron Sorkin should not write this because he really can't write women. No, 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 no. He's not great at it. He's not great at it. <laughs> uh, even even if I do think that I adore CJ as a character, and I think that a lot of the heavy lifting is being done by Allison Janney, who's a tremendous actor. <laughs> um, but I but I do think that uh, yeah, I mean, he's not great at writing women. I, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I do, and actually, thinking about this, like the comedy of remarriage, uh, two spouses being forced to work together is a core tenet of Screwball. And Sorkin clearly is like into writing Screwball. So I get why he, why he would go to that well. But yeah, again, I think that just the writing of women, despite he, you know, he's had, he's worked with some great actresses like Alison Janney and Felicity Huffman and so on. But the writing of women has plagued him throughout his career. And Jessica fu- Chastain. Yeah. Just it's funny what you mentioned about Donna, though, because that's – I always enjoy when that happens, where a show clearly has a relationship endgame in mind, 
and like some like nobody it's like the Truman show where he falls in love with uh the woman who's not Laura Lenny, you know, and they have to kick Natasha her out. McClough, yeah, yeah. yeah, yes, exactly. So like this happened on Arrow with Felicity, who was meant to be like a one episode character and like takes over the show. It's always kind of cool when like the show like fights back against what the creators want to do, or in some cases, what the, the audience fighting back up against what the creators want to do. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, Janelle uh, Maloney said something really beautiful about John Spencer, which is when they were shooting the pilot, Donna's first line is, Leo goes up to her and says, can you get Josh for me? And she screams Josh, like over her shoulder. And Leo says, I could have done that. Um, so they did that line, they did a couple takes of it, and John Spencer turned to her and said, you're going to be here until the curtain comes down. Um, like, he just recognized that there was something about her yeah. and what she was bringing to the... And, and I think that... I, I'm, I'm with you. This, this comes back to sort of what we've been talking about. What I love about television is that something like that can happen, right? That you can yeah. find this thing and be like, oh, this is great. Like, this thing we thought we wanted isn't as great. Um, and it takes great producers and great writers to recognize that because a lot of people force things. A lot of showrunners are determined to make sure that this thing that they want sticks. And I appreciate that they didn't do that. Um, I want to I want to talk for a second about the end of the episode, um, which is uh, everything kind of works out for the most part. Jed is unreasonable <laughs> towards these religious uh, right wing religious people that are in his White House. He says, get your fat asses out of my White House, which feels like a bit much. Um, but at the very, very end, we get sort of a what what will become a classic West Wing moment. We're in the Oval Office and Jeb is basically talking about the Cubans that tried to, to come into the country. Um, I, I, maybe I'm an idealist. I'm certainly a sentimentalist. Whenever I get a speech from Martin Sheen on this show, I either cry or get goosebumps. I think that, that it's beautiful writing. The, the music is swelling. There's this, the, the potential of this country. And it just, and I know I'm an immigrant myself, um, even if, if it's just from Canada, but I do think that this country has so much potential and this show taps into that. And I guess that's what's lovely about it. But I'm curious as to sort of what you guys felt about the crescendo of this episode. I hate it. No, I don't hate it. I don't, like, <laughs> like, like the la- the la- the end well, of it. I love fine. you, Emily. <laughs> the end of it's fine. Like, but what really bugs me is that scene with the the religious leaders. I think that is everything wrong about Aaron Sorkin and the modern um, the modern mainstream left, if you will, in sure. one scene. You know, it is it, it is. I when I was rewatching this, I was like, this scene has always bugged me, but now it's crystallized for me. Uh, what's what's wrong with his approach? I'm going to talk. I'll talk more about that in a second because I I will go off for five minutes. I want no. <laughs> I, I I consciously left that to the end for us to unpack that specific portion of it. Yeah, there's a, there's but a lot it, to talk about with yeah. the guy who doesn't know what the commandments are. I the will guys. say. <laughs> I, okay, so so just to very briefly, like yes, when yes. I I when I was when the show debuted, I was living in South Dakota among religious mm-hmm. conservatives. I was sort of breaking my own religious conservatism and like realizing I was further left leaning than I thought I was, and all of these other things. Sure. Uh, when literally I met a gay person, was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but I um, that scene bugged yeah. a lot of people in my life who otherwise would have liked this show because the the character is so self-consciously a buffoon yeah. and doesn't know things anyone who's been to a Christian church would know. Like, 
you have a vague sense of what the commandments are. Unless, like, you were going to have Bartlett and this guy get in a weird doctrinal difference about, like, where you split the commandments, which is a thing they could have done, like, but I don't think we want to see people having a denominational argument on broadcast television. (laughs) But... The problem with Sorkin and the problem a lot of times with Democrats that I think is in, I can't just, I can't figure out if this is inherent to the way mainstream Democrats conceptualize the universe or if Aaron Sorkin introduced this idea like a mind virus is that everybody behaves the way that like, uh, you know, a, a mainstream Democrat does that if you bring in the evidence and if you bring in like the receipts and if you come in and you speak it with passion and you say, this is what's true, everyone will be so awed and so cowed by you that they'll just sort of back down. I, I lived through the presidency of Barack Obama. He is the most gifted political orator of my lifetime. And like he would give a great speech and nothing would happen because it's just not how the world works. And Aaron Sorkin's world, you cannot account for that. And I think that is the show's biggest flaw politically, but it's also its biggest flaw like in terms of art because like there aren't interesting antagonists in this show. There's just kind of people who like fall over when Bartlett says boo. And it's it, it holds the show back, but I think it's also introduced this kind of terrible idea into our political conversation that has taken over much of the left to the degree that we are now in this place where like, you know, I, 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 I am a Democrat. I tend to vote for Democrats, but like when I vote, but like the, the situation that is presented in this pilot is so far from the one in our world. And it largely stems from people not even attempting to understand where the other side is coming from and not in the sense of like, we all need to get together and talk, but in the sense of like their strategies are so different and the ways in which you defeat those strategies are so different from what you think they are. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't agree with every, I agree with basically nothing that's happening on the right right now. But I do think that back in 1999, there was an attempt, there could have been an attempt to like create a dialogue that we just can't do now and sure, sure, sure. I think that this show kind of failed in that regard. And I think that's one of its biggest struggles because you don't see sympathetic cultural portrayals of people from red states. And that's a tricky thing to do right now because you see how much of that is driven by various prejudices and so on and so forth, the, the really extreme right-wing stuff. Mm-hmm. But like the culturally speaking, when we look at our pop culture, it's all about people who live in basically blue havens and like, I don't know. If I were living in a red state, even with my same politics, I'd be a little annoyed by that. I think that this show definitely tried to to bring Republican characters into the show. But to your point, uh, Emily, they weren't as I, mean, I liked Ainsley Hayes. I appreciated her character. Mm-hmm. I, I, I liked Emily Proctor's performance. And and. Um, but 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 I absolutely hear where you're coming from, Alan. You look like you want you had something to say. Well, it's just it's interesting because the original version of the pilot. That scene is even worse. Not so much because of that scene. The scene is exactly the same mm-hmm. in the version that, that was yeah. like you know shown before TCA and everything else. But the earlier scene where uh, Leo and Al Caldwell are walking on the street outside the White House did not exist. So really? like yes. So all you see is you see huh. Josh on Capitol Beat, you know, telling off Mary Marsh. And then you see the three of them in there. So even though we've been told Al Caldwell is a good man, in the scene he mainly seems like an empty suit and sort right. of you know toothless and all that. And then he's sitting next to the moron who doesn't know what the commandments are so, so he can be the straw man that Bartlett knocks down when he walks in. Right. And I remember at that TCA panel, 
Sorkin got beat up, obviously, for the all-white cast, and that's what led to Charlie coming in. He got beat up for Mandy saying, uh, you know, I would I would bitch slap you across the beltway, whatever the line is. Although, yeah. oddly, not for the homophobic, you know, misogynistic stuff that Josh says in the same scene because people are weird. Um, <sighs> but also, people brought up the the religious conservative scene and saying, like, look, there are definitely bad people on that side, but they just all seem so cartoonish and weak. And Sorkin, you could sort of see him, the light bulb going off as he was talking. And like, clearly they were going to go back to DC to do a little more location shooting. And he wrote that. And so as a result, you go in and you think of Al Caldwell, he's Leo's buddy. He's at least like somewhat decent, even though he's working with these bad people. Whereas in the original version, he's just nobody, and the Republicans, uh, the religious right people, are all just cartoonishly evil across the board. You know, it's (laughs) – I don't – I didn't like this scene. I didn't like this scene for a bunch of reasons. It's not particularly subtle. Um, It's it's clearly um, grappling with a lot of stuff that it – I mean, there's a quote here I'm going to read from an article in the New York Post from July 31st, 99, where Sorkin said, It wasn't my intention to paint the entire religious right with one brush. On the other hand, I admit that there are moments when I take a personal passion of mine and get up on a box and let you know about it. Um, that's one way of putting it. Um, he's being kind to himself, but I, you yeah. know, I, I think that I, I think that this show this this sort of comes full circle to what we were talking about up top, which is that you know uh, this show couldn't exist today. We've had political dramas since. We've had Scandal. We've had House of Cards. We've had various political shows that have that have come up over the years, and and they're they're all kind of dinged with being. Uh, either too soapy or or not particularly political and what have you. This show really does put politics at the forefront. I'd say both those other shows, uh, Scandal and House of Cards, are really more soap operas than they are uh, political dramas. This show wears its politics on its sleeve for good or for bad. Um, and I think that that scene crystallizes it. Um, it's it's not a subtle scene. It it, it runs into anti-Semitism as well, just because it it feels like Sorkin feels like he needs to, you know, comment on that in some way or another. Um, it's 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 just not great. It's it's not a great scene. The best part of the scene, if you ask me, is when Bartlett comes in with this booming commandment uh <laughs> which is just crazy to think about at the time but it's a hell of an entrance and it it's one of the great anyone. entrance lines yeah. any character has ever had in television what could you ask for and then of course like the dials during the test went through the roof and they were like well i guess we got to pay martin sheen a bazillion dollars to, to be on this show it, it, no one can be surprised by that but um i i, I guess that the, the to, to sort of really kind of come to full circle and and, and wrap this up to some degree I want to kind of ask about about the Bartlett character because we talked about how Bartlett wasn't supposed to be a main part of the show. He was just supposed to be sort of a sprinkling or he'd have one scene at the end and essentially it seems like do this every week, which he would show up at the end of every episode, give a big speech and and leave. And by turning Bartlett into a full-fledged character, the show really becomes um, not just an ensemble, but but Bartlett sort of at the top of the food chain. What are your thoughts about Bartlett as a character? I mean, he's a man. Martin Sheen is a person who grapples with his religious, with his, you know, his feelings about religion. It's very much a part of Bartlett's character, which he made clear to Sorkin that he wanted that to be a part of him. Um, how do you feel about sort of the push and pull within this character of being this sort of liberal who apparently isn't totally against or for abortion? I mean, there's just a lot of stuff kind of wrestling inside this character. 
it's fun to think of him through the lens of like Arnie Vinnick, who Alan Alda did ultimately yes. wind up playing in the John Wells seasons of sort of like there are no actual Republicans quite like Arnie Vinnick. And while there are some Democrats like Bartlett, there are not a lot. And one like him would not have like gotten his party's nomination to become president. So like there, there are certain fantasy elements and certain ways in which both Sorkin is trying to reach across the aisle, but it's also reflecting the fact that Sorkin is a centrist and, you know, sort of looks at things that way and just sort of seems left compared to what a lot of, you know, pop culture had been for all of our lives until that point. Um, so there's there's parts of Bartlett that don't feel real, but God, Sheen is so good. Like, to get back to your earlier question, Phil, like, when he starts talking about the Cubans coming through a storm with just the clothes on their backs, yeah. that still gave me chills. When he says, Mrs. Landingham, what's next? I choked up, yeah. although some of that is just knowing what comes with Mrs. Landingham. But, sure, like, sure. he does... I spent a lot of this pilot feeling really frustrated with a show I had once adored. And then Martin Sheen walks in and I'm like, okay, no, I, I get it. I like the show again. I'm good. I'm here. Yeah. Emily? Sheen's performance is Titanic. It's, it's ridiculous that he didn't win an Emmy for this. Yeah. Um, though, you know, the most of the people he lost to, I also like, I don't want to take an Emmy away from you, Michael Chiklis, you know, like it's sure. that, it's that sort Spader of Spader can give back an Emmy. Come on. Okay, Spader can. Spader can. I forgot Spader was in that run. <laughs> Spader got three, I think. Yeah, oh he God. did. He beat Gandolfini for I think the final season of The Sopranos. Yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, I do think the Bartlett character. I'll pull back a little bit. Sorkin is a centrist because he can afford to be. He has no skin in the game. His life will not be particularly impacted if fascists take control of the United States. Like, yeah, you know, he might, like, face some hardship or have trouble getting work or something. But, like, you know, the odds of him being put in a situation where it's literally life or death for him are very unlikely. And, like, I'm a trans lady, but, like, I'm an extremely well, well, not extremely well off, but, like, I haven't. I have a secure job that pays me enough money. I'm a white lady. I live in California. Like I have degrees of privilege above, you know, a a poor black trans woman who tend to be the victims of violence in this country, blah, blah, blah. I have a point. I promise. Like the thing, uh, the thing about that is I still kind of have to have skin in the game because literally like there are state legislatures throughout the country that are trying to outlaw my existence in like ways that are very pernicious. Aaron Sorkin doesn't have to worry about that. So it's easy for him to be like, well, yeah, what if a Democrat just didn't support abortion rights or was like, you know, sometimes abortions right. are not right. He's not a, he's not going to get pregnant. He doesn't ever have to worry about that. Like it's such a, it's such a fucking fantasy of how the world works. And it's a fantasy that can only be concocted if you have power and privilege. It it makes me angrier the further I drift from white manhood. (laughs) Drift is the wrong word, but you get me. (laughs) I I do. I do. And, and listen, I, I I hope that it doesn't seem as though I don't, I don't hear where you're coming from. I do. Absolutely. Uh, I I know you, I know you do. (laughs) I, I, you know, I think that this show is idealistic um, mm-hmm. and and is and is definitely living in in a fantasy. Um, I think that that there is comfort in that fantasy, as unfortunately um, it might perpetuate problems too. So right. I, 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 I see that. I think my larger question is: whose idealism is it? Whose fantasy is it? 
and like to what degree like it's a it's a fantasy for me too i want to work in a place where everybody cares about their job passionately right. and talks quickly and wittily and like <laughs> i've enjoyed i you know i enjoy right. working at a publication where everybody kind of has something interesting to say and we can like mm-hmm. engage in this like really high this really like interesting banter about like i can learn a lot when i'm talking to my colleagues but you know uh, that fantasy of a workplace is so easy to transmute into a fantasy about politics. And it's there where I think the show has huge blind spots. And a fantasy also where like Mary Marsh is kind of an exception to what the show often did, which is the enemies of Bartlett like disagree with him politically, but they are ultimately well-meaning and noble in some way. Mm-hmm. They are just philosophically opposed to him. She's a rare example of someone who is just a, an outright opportunist who is, you know, she's going to get whatever she can when she can and, you know, doesn't want to apologize for that. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I <laughs> the, the, the political spectrum in this country, uh, notwithstanding, um, I, I think that that this show is a relic of a time when it felt like there was some crossover between these two parties. Um, and I think that it, it exacerbated any sort of issues that might have uh, exist that exist between these two parties. Obviously the former president uh, made that abundantly worse and we are still living with that. But I kind of just want to come back to the religious component in Bartlett for a second, because I do look at someone like Joe Biden, who is openly religious, who Mm -hmm. does it it is not about indoctrinating people into religion by any stretch of the imagination, but it it is, it's important to him. It's helped him through, I'm assuming hardships. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, that that Aaron Sorkin was, for lack of a better way of putting it, forced into that because I'm not sure that he would have done it otherwise had had Martin Sheen not asked for this to be such a sort of bearing wall for the character. Um, you know, what do you how, how do you guys feel about the way that, that they handle religion within Bartlett's character? I mean, I think I think it actually works pretty well. I think it's a good aspect of the character. I think about it a lot like Scully's Catholicism in the X-Files, where it didn't come up that often, but every time it did, it felt organic to the character and it felt important to the character. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that works really well for Bartlett. Um, I, I agree that it is it is one of the more Bartlett-ish things about Joe Biden, um, who actually is very similar to Bartlett in a lot of ways, but is taking a sort of very different political tack from what Bartlett would do. Yeah. But like, it, it is it is an interesting similarity between the two. That said, uh, Barack Obama also had a lot of like very uh, important, like had a a religion was very important to him. And a lot of people in the opposition refused to believe that. And I wonder why. Yeah. Shocking. Huh, I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to kind of wrap this up. Uh, my hope is to ask uh, my guests each week, because um, we're not covering the entire series, but I, I would love to sort of hear of one of your favorite episodes from the series. Um, if it's in season one or otherwise, I'd just be curious to hear sort of uh, what other episodes you might have liked. Alan, do you want to go first? Uh, sure, I'm going to annoy Emily here, and I'm you know I'm going to be I'm going to be basic, <laughs> which Emily knows me to do, and I'm going to say two cathedrals. No, <laughs> Should I ask why? No. Uh, because no. like, look, I get it. It's grandiose. It's self-important. It's wildly over the top, and I also haven't watched it again in, in a number of years. Right. But just the idea of Jed Bartlett standing in the national. 
cathedral, stubbing out a cigarette and cursing out God in Latin. Like, <laughs> if you can't do that on this show, like, what are we even doing here? Like, what is the point? Uh, like, point. that to me is sort of the the quintessential good Sorkin scene, or at least the quintessential Sorkin scene to a degree. Emily is going to disagree with me now. Well, I, I want to just, I want to say one quick thing before Emily disagrees, because I, I, I think what it also does is it, it, it exists on a razor's edge, right? Like Sorkin is best when he is taking those big swings and he's going for the theatricality of it. Um, but he's also fallen on his face so many times doing that, that I think the reason two cathedral stands out so well is because he sticks the landing personally, but that's just, yeah, I, I I can just never get past the fact that Two Cathedrals is about a crisis that Aaron Sorkin has specifically like created to completely exonerate Jed Bartlett. It's so <laughs> fake. It's so <laughs> empty. I'm not going to say anything about Two Cathedrals. Okay. Um, What's if, your I'm pick, if I'm picking an episode I love, I do love Enix Chelsea's Day Out. I'm sure if I watched it now, I would yeah. find a million things wrong about it. But when I rewatched a lot of this show for uh, a podcast I made at Vox called Primetime, um, mm-hmm. our first episode was about how this show has infected the way we think about politics. And I actually was very nice to the show in that episode because I had other interview subjects who were like, go harder on it. But you know, my feelings have grown stronger with time, let's say. Um, but I specifically did not watch In Excelsis Deo because I knew if I watched it again, I was going to take issue with it. And I just wanted to remember Aaron Sorkin writes the hell out of a Christmas episode. Yep. And like that is such a, such a nice, nice is the wrong word. There's such a compelling, moving, great Christmas episode. And I just wanted to remember it that way. I didn't want to have to sit there and think about all the things that were, you know, wrong with it. So in Excelsis Deo is always the one I say, and please don't like send tweets to me about how uh, Aaron Sorkin calls, like, you know, Aaron Sorkin uses like several racial slurs in it or something. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't believe that he does. I I mean, I I haven't watched uh, in Excelsis uh, that recently. No, Phil, I got a question for you though. Like, because you're only doing the 1999 episodes. Correct. Does Jed's relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis come up in the 1999 episodes? Do you know? So that's a later thing. Uh, okay. It, it comes It comes up in the premiere of season two. Okay. No, I think it comes up earlier than that because there's – the reason I'm bringing this up because I'm not going to get a chance to tell the story otherwise please, please. since yeah, you're yeah. not hitting the episodes. But Emily brings up the whole – this crisis of Sorkin's creation, which is Aaron Sorkin wanted to write a scene where Jed Bartlett watches a daytime soap opera. And he yep. couldn't think of a way to justify <laughs> it in his head without Bartlett being so ill that, oh like, God. he could not work that day. It's not like, oh, we'll just oh give him the God. bad flu. No, he has to have a secret, extremely life-threatening condition that he and his doctor wife are unethically keeping hidden from the rest of the nation because that is the only context in which it would be acceptable for me to do the joke about Jed Bartlett complaining about the plot of a soap opera. And, like, look at all of the things that happened on the show as a result of that. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> I, I, I know that I, the, the, the story that Sorkin tells is that he doesn't explain why he needed the disease, which I imagine is probably for this explicit reason. But he did say that he went to the staff and said, I want a disease that I can give him that I can that essentially I can manipulate to my needs down the road, however I feel 
I want to use it. <laughs> and he essentially, and to be fair, he did find kind of the perfect disease to do what he wanted to do, which is this relapsing remitting, which is every writer's <laughs> dream of a disease I can bring back whenever I feel like bringing it back. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that there's something, that the MS thing is interesting as well because I feel like uh, it's the first time I had seen that as well. A main character sort of, you know, forgive the terminology, but crippled with something you know, significant, like a massive disease that I felt like, I mean, I know that, 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 that HIV had been sort of given to characters previously and there were other diseases, but I, I, I thought that was an interesting, and I've never seen MS used since quite honestly, that I can think of. I'm not sure I have. No, it, it is, it is a thing that like, um, I mean, I would be no, interested. No, 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 no. What's his face? Um, what can, the, you can see Alan like going through it in his head. It was amazing. This is oh. my entire friendship with Alan. It's just <laughs> him being like, Emily, what's a TV show that stars Big Bird? And I'm like, Sesame Street. <laughs> Ray Curdo. Ray Curdo, the captain on The Sopranos, who was the rat for years and years. And everyone always mistook her Patsy Parisi. It's a running gag that anytime Ray Curdo is meeting with his FBI handler, he's like, I need more money for interferon for my son's MS. So this was it's after. Not even him, it's his son? <laughs> yes. <laughs> This wow. just David I mean, Chase Alan, Duncan on this show. It's just David Chase Duncan on this show. Um, I, uh, yeah, uh, sure, perfect. It does. It does feel like that, right? Do you think that it was like a weird shade thing that he was throwing at the West Wing? It, 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 it certainly could be because I think they introduced that in season three, so they had been dealing with the whole West Wing problem for a while by then. That's a, that. That is that is. That is amazing. Well, uh, you guys are, I don't need to tell you, you guys are, are incredible. <laughs> Everyone should be reading all of your stuff um, and listening to all of your stuff. Alan, do you want to talk about the, your podcast? And, and Emily, would you like to talk about your stuff too, please? Uh, so I got a podcast. It's called uh, Too Long Didn't Watch. The premise is that in every episode, I and a celebrity guest sit down. We pick a show they've never seen before. I show them only the pilot and the series finale and nothing in between. And they have to make some sense about it. So we've got like John Hamm watching Gossip Girl and Allison Brie watching Game of Thrones and Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally watching uh, My So-Called Life and things like that. And our second season is coming sometime, hopefully soon. And without spoiling the show... Emily is on an episode with me, and it is awesome. Emily, this is not the show that I'm on, but Alan, you and I need to do a recurring thing where I force you to watch Neon Genesis Evangelion because I would love to see what you make. It's only 26 episodes, but I'd love to see what you make of the the premiere and the finale of that show watched in a vacuum. I just, I, it, my brain lights up with delight thinking this about This is it. my entire friendship with Emily is every like three weeks she tells me I need to watch Neon Genesis Evangelion. So it's eventually great. it'll happen. You'll wear me down. <laughs> I do want to say you, you didn't highlight this episode, but one of my favorite episodes that you did of your podcast, Alan, was uh, Lena Dunham coming on to talk about Cheers. Oh, that was uh, great. It was a, was a, a tr- Tremendous episode. Um, I I was currently in the midst of a rewatch of Girls at the time, so it it just kind of it was uh, it was really lovely to uh, to listen to Emily. Please, uh, what about your uh, your podcast? Hi, uh, I am the co-creator of a show called Arden, which is a uh, scripted audio fiction podcast. 
Um, it is about two uh, women who solve cold cases and try not to fall in love. It's also about a bunch of other stuff, but that's the log line we've come up with. And doesn't it work beautifully? It works um, there are two. There are two full seasons of it available on your podcatchers of choice. And we just had our first meeting about season three, so you can look forward to that whenever we get around to making it. Um, I also uh, created the Vox podcasts. Uh, I think are interesting and primetime, which you can find. And I'm currently hosting the Vox Quick Hits podcast, What to Watch, where every week Alyssa Wilkinson and I tell you something to watch. All of those are also on your podcatcher. Emily, you work you work too much. You gotta I you gotta too much. cut back. You're making you're making the rest of us look bad. I do, <laughs> I do. I bought I bought so many video games that I haven't played. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you both so much for being here. Uh, I, I know that we look forward to having you back in the future, uh, either for television or movies or, or whatever. We can, uh, we can pry you away from your, your other obligations to talk with us about. So I, I really, really appreciate you both coming on here. My pleasure. It's great. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.